What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com, and I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. And this episode, I'm going to be interviewing Cindy Mollo. Now, Cindy is the editor for Ozark, as well as many other great shows. And we're going to sit down and discuss the approach to pacing and timing and tone in Ozark. Now, this interview was done for FilmmakerU.com. And FilmmakerU.com is a site where all the best come in to teach a class. So you could get the colorist, Eric Whip, who did Mad Max, Fury Road. Or you could get the sound designer for Martin Scorsese to do a class. With all that said, here's my interview with Cindy. One of the things I've noticed when I was going through your career is that some of the shows are very tone heavy. And I'm wondering how you as an editor approach the tone. Like I think about Ozark, I think about House of Cards, I think about Mad Men. They all have very specific, unique tones. So how do you work with your team to create that tone? It's interesting you say that because anytime I have an interview for a new show, uh, particularly a pilot, something that doesn't exist yet, tone is the biggest thing that I like to talk about. And if I've read the script and I have a definite idea of what the tone is, I'll take a stab at it and say, this sounds to me like it's X. Um, With Ozark, in my first meeting with Chris Mundy, and knowing that it starred Jason Bateman, but knowing nothing else, I'd read the first two scripts, I said, I can see where this could be played as a drama, where some moments happen to be funny, or it could be played for comedy. It's it's Jason Bateman. You know, that's you, you can't ignore that that could be a possibility. And Chris said to me, Well, you're you're spot on. Those are the conversations we're having about the tone. And so, you know, between Netflix and MRC, there were some opinions like maybe we could push it a little more popcorn and a little more funny. But Jason and, and Chris very definitely wanted it to be a drama where where things were funny the same way that they are funny in real life. Like something serious can be happening and to be ridiculous, like you slip on a banana peel, you know, and then you get up and you get back to the serious thing that's happened. So we always talked about how things would be funny, but they wouldn't be edited to be funny. And the actors weren't acting those moments to be funny. They just happened to be funny. And so that's been really challenging in a good way on Ozark. Like you just always have to keep that in the back of your mind. We have had a couple of moments. I mean, in the third season, we had this character, uh, Sue, who was the the therapist and her scenes were just funny. She and Jason together were funny, Uh, but I would never, you know, cut between close-ups of them trying to make it funny and create a funny rhythm. You just let it play out in the two shot and in the dialogue, the things that they said together uh, to each other. And I found their scenes absolutely hysterical. Uh, you know how on comedies they'll let the actors take runs at it and do various lines. Oh. Are they doing something? No, it's all by we don't, we don't do that kind of thing for, for exactly what I, what I was saying. Like we are, it is a drama. The show is a drama and things just happen to be funny, but we don't do riffs. You know, we don't do, um, you know, well, that line was funny, but suppose the lot, the, you know, you changed it to coffee or suppose you change it to chewing gum. You yeah. know, we don't do any of that. It is done as scripted film style and it's in the performances and in the writing 
that things emerge, that the humor emerges, but we never, ever, 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 I think that's enough evers uh, play to it. <laughs> have you ever had a situation in your career where you have, you're given a moment that was intended to be tonally one way, but it's not working, that you've had to sort of work with the tone or try and convert it, I guess you could say? You know, I had a moment in a pilot um, years ago. It was for Showtime. It went a couple of seasons. It was called Sleeper Cell. So it's about a terrorist cell in America. It's not a comedy at all. But there's a moment in a scene between two characters where this guy who we know has just gotten out of prison, he's in a park and he meets a young woman. And there's a moment where the two of them are sitting on a bench and he actually forgot his line for like a fraction of a second at a point in the conversation where she had asked him a question and he takes a really long beat and he looks at her and she looks at him. It's a two shot. And then all of a sudden he kind of cracks up and says the thing he was supposed to say. It happened in only one take. It was wonderful as a character moment, not written, not planned. And in a show where there were not intended to ever be any laughs, you know, unlike Ozark where, we're open to humor that comes up in the relationships and, and in the characters. We didn't have any laughs ever in this pilot, but that was such a sweet endearing character moment for a character that we needed to really believe because he would turn out to be something else later. Mm -hmm. um, so that was something where I did it because I found it in the footage. I kind of knew the director would love it because I had worked with him a lot, a lot before that was Clark Johnson. But you know, you always think, oh, some people might think I'm crazy for this, but I'm going to go with it because it just feels lovely and natural. You get all the footage and everyone always says editing's the last rewrite. In your opinion, where does the script end and you're allowed to sort of manipulate the footage how you like? You know, you read the script. We do tone meetings on Ozark, which I just love because we go through the script. Often it's over the phone, even before COVID, because we shoot in Atlanta Mm -hmm. And Chris would either be in LA and we'd sit in his office with the director on speakerphone, or he'd be in Atlanta with the director and I'd be on speakerphone. And they go through the script and Chris talks about, and, and we did this on Mad Men too. Like mm -hmm. one of the best tone meetings I was ever in was with Matthew on an episode that I ended up being nominated for an Emmy for. And, and in both cases, the showrunner goes through the script reading all the dialogue, sometimes the AD will be reading and Matthew or Chris will then explain, here's what I need from this scene. Here's what this scene is about. This scene is about the fact that Marty and Wendy have two differing ideas for how to keep the family safe. And this speech, this is from episode one of season three, this speech is each of them explaining their thesis for how they're going to keep the family safe and their conflicting ideas. And it's going to be the battle between them all season. In the Mad Men episode called uh, Maiden Form, it was an episode about identity. And as Matthew talked about it through each scene, I realized, oh my God, that theme of identity is instilled in every character in every scene of this episode. Are you who you think you are? Or are you who everyone else thinks you are or you know, sees you? And it was steeped in that, in that theme, every, every scene. And in Ozark, every episode 
seemed to me, I didn't edit every episode, but seemed to me to have a scene or two that was this clash between Marty's idea of what safety would be for the family and what Wendy's was. You're asking where it starts, the, 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 the editorial rewrite, let's call it. You, you pick the ball up from the showrunner or the writer of the episode and you carry it. And as you go along, you might find like that example I gave from Sleeper Cell, you might find a moment that's different but it doesn't hurt the tone. It doesn't hurt the theme. It, it gives you a little, uh, you know, that word zhuzh. It gives you a little something. It gives you a little spice, a little flavor, texture, all those things. And I'm always looking to add stuff like that. And sometimes, you know, I've had this debate with people like, well, we don't need that. We want to keep the storytelling as lean as possible. And I'll be like, yeah, but this is kind of cool. And sometimes there's room for it. Sometimes it's a distraction and you don't need it. But I like to think that you're looking for those opportunities. It's not an ego thing. It's not like putting your stamp on it, but it's, it's showing that you've listened to what the show is about and you're looking for ways to augment it. That, that, that's what I would say. But I just thought of a, a pilot I did many, many years ago with Clark Johnson where we did something tonally that was different. Maybe I had the idea in my cut and, or maybe he and I did it together. I honestly don't remember, um, but it changed the tone. And for all of these many years later, I've always wondered like, was that a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, it was really clever and gave the show attitude, but was it the right attitude? And we'll never know. <laughs> and you, you might've, kind of answered this in the last question, but it was also a bit of discussion about theme there. Whenever I've done a class where I'm teaching and I have to explain tone, it's mm -hmm. really hard to explain tone to someone without just going like, well, here it is and showing them a scene or something. To extrapolate on that, how do you discuss tone? Like, what is your discussion like with the director and you the know, showrunner? First of all, I think tone is everything. And because tone is like the filter that you are telling your story through. It's going to determine your style, your attitude, um, how you approach things. And it's going to allow some things to be a part of your style and disallow other things. And in that example I gave of this pilot, it had voiceover always, but I added these freeze frames and the freeze frames made it a little bit smart ass, I think, made the tone a little bit cheeky. And I've never been sure looking back with many, many more years experience now, if that was right or wrong. There were people who loved it and people who didn't love it and the pilot didn't get picked up. So <laughs> it, it, it's a filter. It, it, mm -hmm. it, it lets certain things in and let leave certain things out. I think of it as my guiding principle. When I had my first meeting with Jason, I always tell this story. I didn't have the job yet, but he was talking about what he wanted for the for the show. And he was essentially saying what a lot of people say, that he didn't want to be spoon feeding people information, but it was the way he said it that I found really interesting because he said, we always want to be meditative, hard to get. And I always forget the third word. I have a post-it on a notebook somewhere, but the, the third word was something like um, disciplined. But what he meant was we want to make people lean in. We want to make them have to listen to get 
what we're doing. We don't want to always show like, well, here's what she's looking at on her phone and here's what she sees across the room. We want to maybe stay on her face and see that she's confused and start going, oh my God, what is she seeing? What, you know, again, you're leaning in, trying to figure out as the character is trying to figure something out. And that is part of the tone. And that is something that if you want to distill that into a rule, we don't tend to show a lot of cutaways meant to illustrate every little thing. We don't spoon feed. I think that, I mean, that. that yeah. I was going to say to you when you were saying, it, I was like, should I tell her that I'm going to probably take this snippet out now and use it as an example for students of here's how you explain tone or, cause it's such yeah. a perfect idea. It's a filter. Yeah. It, it, as I was saying it, I'm like, I've never put it this way before. <laughs> this is what it is. It is, it is a filter, a guiding principle. And if you don't know your tone, I mean, take that to like its natural extension. If you don't know your tone, mm-hmm. you can make some, I'm going to say mistakes that will confuse the audience and they won't know what to think. And, and while you don't want to spoon feed them with cutaways, you want to help them understand the story that you're telling and your point of view. So I'm thinking about Madman and John Hamm. Yes. He was actually trying to be a comedic actor when he mm-hmm. started mm-hmm. Uh, with Mad Men. One of the things that I've, I'm always fascinated with is how editors look at the rushes and take in the information or how they sort of dissect what they're going to use uh, from the footage after obviously the director or the showrunner is going to say, I want this shot or I, I really like this take. But how do you assess actors' performance? I always, when I'm talking to my assistants, I always tell them, pay attention to your first experience of the footage, especially in in comedy. What makes you laugh out loud? If it's a horror story, what feels, even without being edited, what feels creepy? What, (laughs) What stirs you? If it's going to be a really emotional ending to something, what gives you that little tingly feeling, maybe makes you almost missed up. What feels, without any editing, what gives you some emotional response? Mm-hmm. Write it down if you're afraid you'll forget it, put a check next to the tape, do something, but don't forget your first feeling when you watch dailies. And it's why I always tell my assistants, like they may come in and say, wow, in dailies today, there's some amazing stuff. And I'll go, no, no, don't tell me. I don't want to watch the footage with your thought in my head. I want nothing in my head. And I just want the footage to tell me things. That is really, really important. Talking about John Hamm and and comedians playing dramatic parts, I think that there's something really interesting there because they... And, and this is, wow, this is a huge generalization. Again, I haven't <laughs> said this out loud before, but sometimes I think it's their same comic instincts, but they're playing it out more slowly. They may get through their dialogue and say the thing they need to say, and then they take these pauses. And they, I just, I find so much happens in the pauses, funny or dramatic. It's, it's all about those moments. Sometimes, you know, you say something and then you stop and think about what you said. <laughs> you let it go with that. You know, you know what I mean? It's yeah, a, yeah. so it's all about timing. It's how you say the, how a character says the lines, how it's all timed. 
you may start watching these dailies and go, oh my God, that will be so cool if right here I cut to the other character mm -hmm. and then we come back and this person is still in that moment, still thinking about it. And then you go on, like you do start to pre-edit in your mind, but I try to really just watch the footage and, you know, make mm -hmm. me feel things. It's funny that you would say that about the comedians because my wife and I love comedy and going to comedy clubs and stuff. And so we're very... Right big fans of comedy podcasts and in the interviews with all these comedians a lot of them have said that a lot of comedians are broken in a sense or they've experienced a really rough life and the comedy is what gets them through it and I wonder how much those experiences are able to translate to the screen. I, I, I guess I can't speak for any actor yeah personally. Like, I don't think, I don't want to speak for any actors either. Yeah, but. yeah. I mean, we've all heard those interviews, though. Yeah. And there are a lot of creative people who, you know, are replaying emotions from pain in their past. I think as an editor, you watch an actor portraying a moment and it taps into your past. I mean, it's why we all loved watching fictional stories on TV and the big screen because we get to live in someone else's world for a little while. We can forget whatever horrible thing happened to us at school that day or our parents are getting divorced or, you know, whatever it is, we bring that to the experience. The actor is bringing their pain and joy to the experience. And we're all just looking to recognize the same emotions in, in each other, I think. I'm working on a project now that I can't talk about, but in watching the footage, I would have days and days where I was like, oh my God, I can totally relate to this person. That's me, but me on steroids, or that's me if I had had these other opportunities. Like I was very aware as I was watching the footage, it's a documentary, and I was just relating, relating, relating. But this person was so different from me. But I had to find that connection. It was helping me make my way through what was probably a hundred hours of footage. I'm not, I'm not, I haven't totaled it up, but like it was a massive amount of footage. Yeah. So in order to help myself remember it, I was connecting. I, I was making note of what I was feeling, but I was also connecting and relating my own experience. Mm -hmm. How do you make sure that what you've been working on will be something that the audience will relate to and be able to connect with. I'm sure my process is like many editors. You know, when you're shooting out of order, there are always times, and, and you're shooting over many weeks, whether it's a feature or now when we do these streaming shows, we shoot two episodes at the same time. And so you'll have big gaps, you know, where you've gotten these five scenes in a row and then you don't have 10 scenes. And then, But I'll sit down you know, usually on a Thursday night or a Friday before the weekend and look at what I've got and I'll put cards in for the stuff that's missing because I always want to be thinking, let's, in the case of an Ozark episode, okay, so Marty and Wendy are doing this. Now, why are they doing that? What? Oh, right. The next scene is going to be shot at the casino and it's going to fill in that gap that I just mm -hmm. experienced. I remember a number of years ago, I was watching a movie with my younger sister, Lisa, and I didn't remember this from growing up, but she would talk while we were watching the movie and she'd say, why is he doing that? Where's he going? What's happened? And I'm like, I don't know. I've never seen this before. And then she'd go, well, what did he just, I don't know. I've never seen it before. And then I <laughs> shut up because I said, she is narrating 
her internal process as she watches the story <laughs> as the editor, <laughs> not of this movie, but of something yeah. else she might watch. I want to make sure that I answer those questions for her, but that I control how the answers are given to give her suspense or joy or whatever the thing is. So I, I call these these passes where I look at my show before it's fully assembled, I call them my sister Lisa pass, where I try to make sure that the scenes that are coming in are all the answers to the questions, or that at least I understand the questions that an audience might have and the answers that they might need. And the answers might not come in that episode. They might be, you know, setting up an audience to expect the answer three, four uh, episodes later. But I like to just, make sure I'm aware of the conversation that will be had. And that was such a long answer, Gordon. I'm sorry, I forgot <laughs> the question. I hope that made some sense. It, no, it did, because it was all about, like, how do we make sure that the audience is going to relate to this character, relate to this show, which is so important. The thing I love about film and TV shows is when I've watched it and I sort of walk away and I'm like, oh, yeah, that was really good. And yeah. then about a week later, I'm still, it's still in my head and it's still percolating. And I was like, yeah, but well, what about that? What about this? And, and, you know, I do have to say one thing I've been very lucky of, but it has always been a conscious choice. The first television show I worked on in New York was Homicide, Life on the mm -hmm. Street. And I loved that show. I remember rhythms and, and, dialogue scenes from that show to this day. I just, it was such a great experience, such a great way to start my career. I said to myself, when I moved to Los Angeles, I always have to follow the best writing I can. And, and luckily because I started on that show, it kind of launched me with certain writers from that show who I worked with later, certain directors, and so I've always been really careful that everything that I was lucky enough to work on or that I went after and was lucky enough to be hired for was the best writing, writing that I was jazzed about, that, mm -hmm. you know, I wanted to know those characters and to, to follow that plot line. I mean, I think the storytelling on Ozark is phenomenal. Every season, mm -hmm. when I start reading scripts, I'm like, oh my God. I, it's never anything I would have seen coming and it's always something I'm delighted to to be a part of making happen obviously you have to but how do you not want to talk about the scripts then if like if, if they're moving you that much it would drive me nuts not to be able to be like oh wait till you see this season it's uh it's hard it's hard but I know that you can never count on the fact that what you find entertaining or the way you might describe something before it's even been shot is gonna satisfy a viewer of the show. Someone might go, oh, I didn't think that should happen. I thought it would be blah, blah, blah. And now you're like, oh, I've ruined it for myself and I've ruined it for this person. Like mm -hmm. it's, it's just so much better to keep your mouth shut and let them wait and be, surprised and delighted trust trust the writers they're they're so good on our show is there a scene or something that you've cut that afterwards you were really proud of despite how hard it was to cut that particular scene or show and why was it something that stood out for you wow 
That's a tough one because sometimes the scenes that are the hardest to cut, you wouldn't expect. Like the hardest scenes for me are four people around a dinner table, four, six, eight, sometimes even, but not two, but you know, four and more. And all those angles and keeping the best performances controlling what shoulder you're over as you're between these two characters and then this person like those are technically difficult mm -hmm. um to manage the eye lines and the the dialogue but that that's not really such an interesting thing i mean sometimes you can have a scene that is um deceptively simple like like we had a moment in season three either episode seven or eight i can't remember of ozark and spoiler alert, I mean, the season's been out. <laughs> so sorry, everyone. But uh, there's, uh, you know, the therapist, Sue, has not fared well. And uh, they're getting rid of her car. And we have just a couple of angles. One looking down on a patch of dirt and a car, but is just dirt. And then two actors standing on this little bluff above this dirt. And then we have some reverse angles on them. And you're kind of creating something out of nothing because you don't have the car, you don't have the water, you put in water sound so you and the glug glug of the thing. And you talk about how it's the car with all the windows up so it would have air in it. So it will bob a little bit, but then it will go under. And how many shots do you need for the audience to go, oh my God, that's her car. Oh my God. And, and literally, again, this goes back to the sister Lisa pass because you know that there are some people who are gonna be saying, how did they get the car in the water? Did they drive it with like a cinder block on the, on the gas pedal? And should the car be going in front end first? Well, then it would tip this way. Like you have to have all those conversations and you have to have some time for the audience to think about the poor woman is yeah. she in the car? Is she somewhere else? What happened? How was she killed? You know, all of that. The two people who've done the deed and they just seem heartless. It's a bloodless crime. Blah, 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 and they go right on to the next thing they're going to do. There's some provocative dialogue where you get the sense that maybe she's going to have them kill Marty and Wendy next. And mm -hmm. you want people to think that, you know, so that's a scene with very, very little footage. Most of it still to be imagined. No car, no water. Um, and you have to make something of it that makes people feel something. That's actually kind of fun, but it's, you yeah. know, it's tricky. It's tricky. Now I have one last question that I like to ask everyone I interview. What would you say your favorite guilty pleasure film is to watch? Oh my God, that's an easy question. I, love, I absolutely love Galaxy Quest. Oh, that's a great <laughs> one. I, <laughs> I just think that is the best dialogue. And for years, when we work in a room together, which God knows when that will ever happen again, and a director would say something to me like, hey, could you do such and such? And I would just go, hold, please. Uh, like Sigourney Weaver talking to the computer and Alan Rickman. I, I mean, I just, it's such a guilty pleasure that also is connected to the idea that I think that was my first year in LA and I was seeing posters on bus stops and I'm like, what is that? And I wasn't specifically a science fiction fan or a, mm -hmm. or a Star Trek fan. And when I finally got to see it, I was like, this is the most genius thing I've ever seen. It's hysterical. Yeah. So that's my guilty pleasure. There is a continuity error that ends up working for the movie that I just found out about. Oh, what's that? So Sigourney Weaver's going through and then all of a sudden 
her like sleeve is ripped and like you can see her bra and everything uh-huh. but there's no explanation for it right, right? right, right. and it turns out they cut a scene where like there's like a tussle or something that gets ripped ah. and then they were like but it made more sense because one of her complaints at the beginning was that they're constantly sexualizing her <laughs> and ripping things open and so it just naturally happened and they, they're like we just won't explain it and and it reminds me of that line where alan rickman looks at tim allen and says i see you got your shirt off <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly <laughs> oh my god that yeah that's that's such fun probably gonna watch that this weekend then there you go there you go (laughs) thank you so much for letting me interview oh it was really fun gordon thanks for your time so that was my interview with cindy i'd like to thank her for joining me in this interview i'd also like to thank evan winch for cutting this episode as well as netflix for setting this up i'm your host gordon burkell thanks for listening